Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's just before five in the morning on the 7th of October, 1946, and an emaciated and exhausted sailor is wedged in a crevice in the coral on a tiny atoll on the vast Pacific Ocean. Waves crash over him, the salt water stinging his many lacerations. But as cut up as this man's hands and feet are, he can't give an inch or let go because if he does, he'll be torn to shreds on the jagged reef and then he'll drown. As the day brightens, he makes a painful climb over sharp coral to the highest point on the atoll and takes stock of his situation. The catch that's brought him here, the Nova, is stuck on the reef, its pine hull in danger of breaking up under the hammering of the waves. South of the atoll, maybe three miles away across an open stretch of water, is the island he'd been drifting towards when he ran aground a few hours ago and was forced to abandon ship. He doesn't know which island he's looking at and it doesn't much matter because unlike the forbidding bit of rock he's clinging to with its sparse growth of palms and shrubs, the island over there is real land, ringed with beaches, dense with pine forests, the first he's seen after four long and horrific months lost at sea. Even better, with smoke rising from several places, it's obvious this island is inhabited. Safety, food, medicine human company, they're all right there. All he has to do in his weak, hungry and battered condition is get across the water and find his way ashore through a ring of jagged reefs. 
I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. Stories of people surviving vast seas in tiny boats and on remote specks of land have fascinated us for centuries. In 1629, off the coast of what's now Western Australia, the commander of the wrecked Batavia, Francisco Pelsart, and other survivors sailed a flat-bottomed longboat more than 900 nautical miles to present-day Jakarta to get help. Some 75 years later, Alexander Selkirk, a Scottish sailor, refused to continue on the boat St George when he didn't think it seaworthy and instead opted to stay on a small, uninhabited island west of Chile, where he'd remained for four years and inspired Daniel Defoe to write Robinson Crusoe. In 1789, following the mutiny on the bounty, Captain William Bly and 18 of his loyal crew were set adrift in a small boat near Tonga, only to survive a six-week, 4,000-mile journey to safety in Timor. In 1832, Japanese teenager Otakichi and three other crew survived 14 months drifting at sea after a storm left their rice transport ship without a mast or rudder. Just over a century later, in 1942, Chinese sailor Pun Lim escaped the sinking of his merchant ship by a Nazi U-boat and endured 133 days on a raft in the Atlantic by catching fish and seabirds. And as recently as 2014, Salvador Alvarenga of El Salvador made world headlines when he washed up on the Marshall Islands 438 days after he set out on a short fishing trip from Mexico. While all of these stories have been rightly remembered and celebrated, another epic tale of survival at sea that started 100 miles north of Sydney has been completely forgotten. Built in 1923 by Norman Wright, leading Queensland shipbuilder, the Scotia was a fine catch constructed from New Zealand kauri pine that weighed some 15 tonnes and measured 43 feet from bow to stern. In mid-1935, the Scotia made the news when it weathered a three-day cyclone off the Queensland coast with all six people aboard surviving the ordeal. When war came, the Scotia was requisitioned by the Australian Navy and saw service as a military transport in the islands. Somewhere along the line, the catch was renamed the Nova, and on the 16th of March 1946 in Brisbane, the Commonwealth Government sold the boat at an auction of decommissioned vessels. The Nova was bought by Mr Cecil Wise of Elizabeth Bay in Sydney, and he hired another Sydney cider, Grant West, to go up to Brisbane and bring the Nova down the coast. 34-year-old Grant West was an ex-Royal Australian Navy man and had a lot of experience handling small craft. Arriving in Brisbane, he looked up Richard Rugg, a childhood friend he'd grown up with in Hurstville, and asked him if he'd join the small crew he was putting together for the voyage. West said he expected it to take three weeks and that he'd lined up more work ferrying other boats from Brisbane to Sydney. Rugg, who'd also served in the Navy during the war, cast an eye over the Nova and told his friend to count him out. 
In his opinion, the catch was in pretty poor condition and not safe for a voyage of that distance in the southern seas. West said he intended to make some repairs, but Rugg couldn't be convinced. After engaging a pilot to take him along the Brisbane River, Grant West sailed the Nova Solo to Ballina on the New South Wales north coast. There, he had repairs and maintenance done to the catch, and he took on two crewmen who he apparently already knew through his maritime connections. Marine engineer Frank Pulling, 44, had operated boats for the Americans during the war, sustaining wounds as a result of Japanese bombing in Oro Bay in Papua New Guinea. He now had a refrigeration engineering business in Casino, though his wife and child lived in Sydney. Grant West's other hire was Frank Anderson, known to his mates as Fred, who'd served with the 7th Division in Syria and with the 9th Division in Borneo. A widower, Anderson planned to spend six weeks visiting one of his brothers after the Nova got to Sydney. With the Nova ready for the next leg of its journey, the trio set out from Ballina and arrived at their next port of call, Coffs Harbour, in late May. Clearly not in any hurry, they spent just over two weeks there, making friends with local fishermen, while Grant West tried to convince one of these guys to round out his crew. He didn't have much luck until the 8th of June, when he took on 35-year-old James Cush, a huge Norwegian sailor who spoke in halting English. With his accent, ancestry and whopping 19-stone frame, Cush, who'd been in Australia since jumping ship in Queensland just before the war, was nicknamed Big Jim the Norwegian by wharfies he'd worked with in Brisbane. Grant West's plan was to sail south from Coffs Harbour in a few short hops. Accordingly, the Nova carried only a small ration of food, 9 gallons of petrol and 12 gallons of water. On the same day West hired Cush, the Nova motored from Coffs Harbour and then set sail, covering 35 miles before putting in at the little fishing village of Jerseyville on the Maclay River near Southwest Rocks. The next day they set out again, the plan being to do a straight run to Newcastle, some 200 miles south. 24 hours later, they were closing in on their destination when, eight miles northeast of Port Stephens, a strong northeasterly wind blew up and damaged their sail. To get ahead of the weather and save the ship, the men fired up the Nova's 65 horsepower engine, usually only used to get them in and out of harbours. What they soon discovered was that they didn't have as much fuel as they thought, and the engine ran out of petrol. The men went for a brand new backup sail that was stowed in a bag, only to find it was far too small for the Nova. Buffeted during the night, they saw the lights of a ship and fired flares and sent an SOS signal with a Morse lamp. A light appeared to blink in return, but they couldn't understand the message. Using the lamp, Cush asked the ship to repeat, but this mystery vessel didn't signal again and it faded from view. In the morning, the men rigged up the small sail as best they could, but it wasn't much good and the Nova kept drifting north, though land was still in sight. 
Around 3pm that afternoon, another storm blew up and they were pushed yet farther north. They could still see Sugarloaf Lighthouse near Seal Rocks though, and if they could just catch a favourable easterly with their jury sail, it'd take them in to safety. Another more violent storm hit, thrusting them deeper into the sea and washing their clock and sextant overboard. Now the Nova was out of sight of land and its crew had little way of controlling the vessel or even simply determining their position. Grant West, Frank Pulling, Fred Anderson and Jim Cush were all experienced sailors and they knew their situation was serious. But they also knew that Given they weren't too far off the New South Wales coast, that they'd likely be rescued by a passing ship within a week or so. Until then, though, they'd need to ration their food. So they took inventory. The Nova carried six pounds of fresh fish, flour, potatoes, a tin of pineapple, some honey and sugar, a tin of sausages, a block of cheese, and some powdered and condensed milk. Again, the men rigged up jury sails that might catch an easterly and nudge them back to land. But strong winds continued to blow from the west and the Nova drifted farther and farther into the Pacific. Frank Pulling started to keep a diary of events. By the 18th of June, after they'd been lost at sea for just over a week, their food was dwindling and by the 23rd, the men had eaten the last of their supplies, a pitiful gruel made from flour and condensed milk. They tried trolling for fish with hand lines, but the boat wasn't moving fast enough for them to be successful. At least the storms meant they had plenty of water, but for the next nine days, the men didn't have a single thing to eat. Using forks from the Nova's cutlery drawer, they rigged up a spear and, on the 1st of July, succeeded in catching their first fish. With the small fire they'd kept going by burning rope, they cooked and portioned the catch. Flesh, fins, guts, head, everything. But while Anderson and Cush were careful to eat small portions, West and Pulling gulped theirs down and then promptly threw up everything. Three days later, having caught no more fish, their hunger was so bad that they scraped barnacles from the Nova's hull to make a soup. Collecting the barnacles was difficult and it took 200 of these little shellfish to make a meal sufficient for just one man. Barnacle soup wouldn't sustain these starving men for long. Yet they might not live long enough to waste away because the Nova's hull had been weakened during the initial storms and was now leaking. The weakened men took turns at the hand pump, but they were fighting a losing battle. That was until Cush had an idea. What if they dismantled the lavatory pump and used it as a second bilge pump? They did that, it worked, and for the time being, the Nova would stay afloat. When they'd been lost at sea for about a month, the men came to think that they might be lucky enough to wash up on Lord Howe Island. But 
They weren't lucky, and as day after day passed, they didn't see land or even the seabirds that would indicate that land was close. When the Nova was a month overdue, its owner, Cecil Wise, reported the craft missing to insurance companies who then notified the Sydney police. It was later reported that a large search of the eastern seaboard was initiated, though if that was true, it wasn't reported in any newspaper that I've been able to find. And that's curious because other missing boats at this same time got considerable coverage. The only explanation I can think of is that the police, hearing that Grant West was known to head off to sea for weeks at a time without telling anyone where he was going or when he'd be back, thought that the men were probably off fishing somewhere and would turn up sooner or later. But even if the police were looking, as they'd later claim, they had no chance of finding the Nova, which was now hundreds of miles northeast of New South Wales. Having eaten nothing but thin barnacle soup for 10 days, on the 11th of July, the men caught their second fish. Five days later, they were down to their last two matches. It was more important than ever now to ensure their fire kept burning. Not only so they could cook whatever they managed to catch or scrape, but also because it might be their only way to signal any passing ship or plane. Even that slender hope was fading, and the men made wills, signed and witnessed them for each other. West, Pulling and Anderson also penned notes to their loved ones. They put these documents, along with a few personal effects, including the £200 in war bonds that comprised Cush's assets in this world, into a sealed fire extinguisher and tossed it overboard. At least when the Nova went down or when they finally succumbed to starvation or the elements, there was a chance their messages in a canister would wash up somewhere and the world might know of their fate. Out there on the endless sea, the men found themselves lapsing into fantasies about food, preparing lavish meals in their imaginations, only to be snapped back to the reality of their slow starvation. On the 24th of July, they caught three fish. But Weston Pulling, who were spending less and less time out of their bunks, couldn't keep any food down. Meanwhile, Anderson suffered an attack of the malaria that he'd contracted in Borneo during the war. On the 27th of July, their situation worsened when the Nova was hit by gale force winds and storms. For three days, the men couldn't fish or scrape barnacles or do much of anything. With pulling too weak to continue writing his diary, Cush took over, jotting rough notes about their ordeal in his tide table book. When the weather cleared, the boat's already tattered jury sails were damaged again and needed repairing. Cush and Anderson, who'd recovered from his malarial bout, did this work with an ordinary darning needle. But West and Pulling were unable to help because they could now barely get out of their bunks. On the 30th of July, Cush caught a few more fish. Five days later, their fire went out. Cush and Anderson tried to relight it, but their two remaining matches failed. 
using flint from a cigarette lighter and some flammable paint remover, they managed to get the fire going again. Cush and Anderson tried to urge Western Pulling to get out of their bunks, telling them that activity was essential for both their health and morale. But they were talking to men who were little more than skin and bones, and in any case, Cush and Anderson themselves deteriorated further when six days passed without a fish being caught. Then malaria came again for Anderson, and on the 12th of August, another gale blew up that lasted for three days. Two days after this weather died down, Grant West, who'd hired the crew for this mission, lapsed into unconsciousness in his bunk. He died at sunrise on the 18th of August. Cush and Anderson were going to conduct a burial service on deck, but Pulling was too weak to get up and pay his last respects. So, reading from a Roman Catholic prayer book, they held it by his bunk in the cabin. Cush and Anderson wrapped West in a shroud they'd made from hessian, scavenged from a settee, and with 28-pound lead ballast blocks, they weighed down his body and buried him at sea with the setting of the sun. Three days later, Frank Pulling became delirious, fell into unconsciousness and died. Cush and Anderson repeated their grim duties and consigned him to the deep. The death in rapid succession of their two fellows had a profound mental effect on the survivors, but they resolved to keep busy to fend off despair and depression. The two men fished, more regularly now rewarded with a catch, and started caulking the Nova's still-leaking hull because they'd grown too weak to pump. Around this time, Jim Cush had a dream. In this vision, his mother who'd died giving birth to him, appeared to say that he and Anderson would be rescued on the 80th day, which was now just a few days away. On the 30th of August, with the ocean again choppy, Anderson had an attack of seasickness, which weakened him further. Then his malaria came back with a vengeance. On the 31st of August, their 80th day at sea, Cush shared his dream with Anderson and both men took comfort from what seemed to be supernatural guidance. Ravaged by malaria, Anderson was too weak to get out of his bunk and at 3pm that afternoon he asked Cush to turn him around so he could see outside the cabin. Cush did so and they talked again of the dream before the big Norwegian went outside to fish and to keep a lookout. When he came back in around 6pm, Fred Anderson lay dead in his bunk. Cush was bereft. The dream had meant nothing. Anderson, who he'd become close to during their ordeal, was gone and he was alone on the ocean. Cush made a shroud from a military overcoat and his own dressing gown and managed to get Anderson's body out onto the deck. 
but he was so weak now that it took him the best part of a day to lift, carry and attach the lead ballast blocks to the shroud so he could bury his mate at sea. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Kush now fought a constant battle against the temptation to just give up. With what little strength he had, he kept himself as busy as he could, fishing and caulking. A week after Anderson's death, he'd managed to stop the leaks entirely and was catching an increasing number of fish. But loneliness and fear of insanity plagued him, and the eternal creaking of the Nova's timbers was maddening. Cush prayed for hours on end, and sometimes God seemed to listen. After praying one Sunday morning, Cush went out on deck as if obeying a voice and found that the Nova was surrounded by fish, many of which he was able to catch with ease. Cush also read aloud from the Roman Catholic prayer book because he feared losing his ability to speak from lack of contact with human beings. Consciously reading aloud, he thought, was also better than his increasing tendency to absently talk to himself all the time. By the middle of September, the weather was getting warm, so warm that Cush felt he was near or perhaps already in the tropics. Then birds began to appear and this gave him a ray of hope. The fish that he caught, too, were species usually found closer to land. Cush caught what he thought was a blackfish and another that seemed like a John Dory and leather jackets were also now swimming around the Nova. Land, he thought, must be somewhere not far over the horizon. In addition to leather jackets, sharks swam around the boat, taking his bait and sometimes his catch, meaning Cush was soon out of hooks. But he made more from one of the spring mattresses on board. The sharks also helped as they caused fish to school around the boat, which made them easier to hook or to spear. Cush was soon catching blackfish, tuna, trevally and leather jackets. Around this time, his heart soared when he spied the passenger ship SS Marinda on its regular run from Sydney to Lord Howe, Norfolk Island and Vanuatu. Though Cush was close enough to be able to read its name using a spyglass, he wasn't able to attract its attention and the Marinda disappeared over the horizon. Not long after, a plane passed overhead and again Cush's hopes of rescue rose, only to be dashed when it flew on. By the end of September, the Nova, though in flat and calm waters, was drifting ever faster and, judging from the increasing number of birds he was seeing, hundreds, then thousands, Cush knew he was approaching land. 
Alert, he stayed awake and on deck as much as possible, looking for land by day and for ship lights by night. Then, at dawn on the 6th of October, Cush saw two land masses. Closest to him was a barren atoll, but beyond that was a large island covered with dense pine trees. Given his recent sighting of the Marinda, Cush thought he might be looking at one of Vanuatu's many islands. Early in the afternoon, he saw smoke rising from amid the pines. Whatever the island was, it was inhabited, and that was all that mattered. Cush hoisted his distress flag and used the fire to make smoke signals. He received no response, and no one came for him. At sunset, the Nova was still in deep water, drifting steadily towards the island. As night fell, Cush put out a sea anchor to slow the boat. Given he was now much closer to the island, he hoped that his signals might attract attention in the morning. But at 2am on the 7th of October, the Nova smashed against the atoll. A 15-knot wind was adding power to the waves and Cush feared the catch he'd called home for the past four months might now break up around him. He had to abandon ship and take his chances on the reef. In the darkness, Cush leapt onto the rocks and clambered into a cleft in the coral formation where he wedged himself against being washed away by the waves. As dawn broke and the seas died down, Cush climbed to the atoll's highest point and saw that there were three miles of water between him and the island. Weak, cut and bleeding, there was no way he could swim that distance. For hours, he just lay on his back before summoning the strength to descend to the Nova, climb aboard and get water and whatever else he could salvage. Cush made a crude bed of pandanus leaves and did little but sleep and sip water for three days. Feeling a little stronger, he collected shellfish and sucked on the roots of plants he pulled from the atoll. Cush used a magnifying glass to catch the sun and try to signal anyone on the island. But it did no good. Neither did smoke from the small fire he managed to get started with dried grasses he collected. On the 14th of October, after a week on the atoll, he gingerly walked across the reef towards another islet, but the water was too deep and he had to turn back. Cush now knew that no one was going to rescue him. If he was going to survive, he'd have to make one more voyage across the water. On the morning of the 19th of October, Cush started making a raft from oil drums and planks he salvaged from the Nova. Two days later, he paddled this makeshift craft away from the atoll and towards the pine-covered island. The journey was torturous, his limbs weak, sores stinging, skin being burned by the sun. But finding a gap in the reef, Cush came up on the swampy shore and clambered off his raft only to find himself waist deep in quicksand. For two and a half hours he fought against this sucking sludge before finally freeing himself. 132 days after leaving Jerseyville, 
James Cush was back on solid land and within walking distance of civilization. That was if he could walk. When he tried to walk, his weakness caused him to fall every few minutes. Cush struggled along a beach, finding a litter-strewn hut in which he discovered a half-tin of condensed milk. This, combined with a coconut that he found, made a meal that gave him a little bit of strength. Resuming his journey along the beach, Cush saw a figure coming across the sand towards him. This wasn't a hallucination. The man, Ivor Peterson, was real. The first person Cush had seen in nearly two months. Peterson was every bit as surprised when he saw this emaciated figure, dressed in rags, covered in sores, his face obscured by hair that hung past his shoulder and a huge beard halfway down his chest. Peterson offered Cush a cigarette and then escorted him to the house of the gendarme who looked after this place, which, as it turned out, was the Isle of Pines, a former French prison island and part of New Caledonia, more than 1,000 miles from Jerseyville in New South Wales. The policeman's wife gave Cush food, which he ate ravenously for an hour, washing it down with liberal amounts of wine. They took him to a local mission where he sent a radio telegram to the Sydney Water Police. It read, Advise Wise, owner of Nova, launch wrecked. Grant West, dead of starvation. Anderson, dead of malaria. Frank Pulling, dead of starvation. In bad shape myself, Cush. And it was true. Cush was in bad shape. He'd lost half his body weight, from 19 stone down to 9 stone. All but three of his teeth had fallen out. He had scurvy and anemia, and he was covered in cuts and sores and sunburn. There were other injuries too, but these were mental and emotional, and they contributed to Cush feeling that, even though he'd made it to safety, that he was still going to die. His saviours were worried too and made arrangements for him to be transferred to the hospital at the US Army's Camp Barnes at Noumea. And Noumea, 80 miles across the Pacific to the northwest, was where an Australian named Jim McDougall was taking a holiday and he couldn't believe his luck when he heard about Cush being found on the Isle of Pines. That's because McDougall had been a journalist since 1924 when the strength of his writing had seen Keith Murdoch personally give him a cadetship with Melbourne's Herald newspaper. After nearly a decade there, he'd taken off for Europe, getting into adventures that saw him interview soon-to-be-assassinated Austrian Chancellor Engelbert Dolfus and landing for a few days in a Serbian prison. Back in Sydney in 1937, McDougall was appointed picture editor for Frank Packer's Daily Telegraph before, in 1946, defecting to The Sun, where he was given a front-page daily column called Contact. Now, a worldwide scoop had literally washed up near him, if he could get to Jim Cush 
before anyone else. Jim McDougall hired a catch and made for the Isle of Pines. Arriving at the gendarme's house, he found that he'd sailed right past Cush, who'd already been sent to Numea for medical treatment. But the French policeman told McDougall what he knew, that Cush had washed up on a jerry-rigged raft, that he'd been covered in hair and had lost half his body weight, that he'd eaten ravenously and was overall in pretty bad shape. McDougall hightailed it back to Numea and found Cush in hospital. He described him as a, quote, Crusoe-like figure, face encased in a huge black beard and hair lank and shaggy. When the reporter walked into the ward and announced that he was Australian, Cush's response was, quote, well, sit down and let's have a drink, before he ambled to a cupboard, plucked out a new bottle of liqueur and poured himself and his guest schooner-sized glasses. McDougall wrote, He has hundreds of cigarettes. The French people have made a hero of him, sent him bottles of champagne and liqueurs. But while Cush was being treated like a king and seemed out of physical danger, McDougall could see that he was still suffering what the reporter called reactions, that is, post-traumatic stress. Cush was unable to sit still, his speech was disjointed and vague, and his emotions fluctuated. From that first meeting, McDougall had his scoop, and on Friday the 25th of October 1946, his story dominated the Sun newspaper's front page with the headline, quote, Madness, Death in Sea Horror, One Survivor on Vanished Ketch. The article outlined the basics of the sensational story, from the crew's stay in Coffs Harbour to the Nova being blown out to sea by storms and the subsequent deaths of Grant West, Frank Pulling and Fred Anderson. McDougall didn't shy away from reporting that Cush was in bad shape mentally and emotionally. Quote, As he sat and talked to me today, Cush's eyes, set deep from suffering and reflection, roamed curiously from object to object in the hospital ward. His body shook when he laughed, and when he opened his mouth, three tusky teeth showed. All the others had fallen out from lack of hard foods. He became moody and quiet when he talked about his lost mates. Cush told McDougall, quote, The loneliness was terrible. It nearly got me down. Life after Anderson died, he said, was mostly, quote, The monotony of the eternal passage of the sun, moon and the stars. This quote particularly reflected his mental turmoil. The Marinda was sighted and also a plane, but to no avail. Finally, I was left alone and I find myself more confused than ever as I try to remember things that happened then. But I cannot tell you all the little things, only the tale of the ordeal of days under the blazing sun on a sea that reeled before my eyes. 
At this point, Cush didn't mention praying or God or visions, but instead said that his one consolation was a book called Failure of a Mission by Neville Henderson, which recounted this British diplomat's unsuccessful attempts to avert war with Hitler's Germany. It was an odd book in which to seek solace when trying to survive the fight of your life. But Cush, in this first interview, was all over the place, announcing he wanted to recuperate for three months back on the Isle of Pines, before saying, quote, And tonight, I would like to go to a dance. Not to dance, but to feel again the touch of civilization." Cush's story, as related by McDougall, made headlines around the world, not least because him having survived for four months at sea on a small craft was thought to be a modern-day record. It was in this vein that newspaper reports also made passing reference to other epic sea survivals, including that of Australian sailor Murray Chambers, who, on the 9th of December 1941, had survived a Japanese submarine attack on his merchant steamer and then been the only one of 24 men to survive a 2,000-mile, 38-day lifeboat trip across the Pacific. Side note, I'm telling Murray Chambers' strange story in a special bonus episode, so be sure to check it out. Over the coming days, Jim McDougall visited Jim Cush frequently in the hospital. In his front page article for The Sun on the 28th of October, he noted, quote, it has been hard to get a narrative from Cush because details are not clear. He is not certain of dates. Cush is suffering reaction and this morning did not want to walk and talk. When he did resume talking, he was serious and sombre, asking McDougall to make contact with Fred Anderson's family to tell them that he died fighting to his last. Cush told the reporter about the fire extinguisher floating out there in the Pacific that contained his dead mate's messages and he said he hoped whoever found it passed these last words on to their loved ones. Cush, who wore a cross and a St Christopher medal, also asked for a copy of Key of Heaven, a Catholic prayer book. As he explained, quote, When everyone else left me, I still had God. And now he related his story of the miracle of the fishes. Even if not stable mentally and emotionally, Cush looked better after a shave and a haircut. McDougall noted, quote, He is a handsome man. Cush again said he wanted to go back to live on the Isle of Pines with his rescuer Ivor Peterson, who'd accompanied him to Numea. He said that the Isle of Pines was a fisherman's dreamland. Quote, I think I might find life more pleasurable in these islands than back in Australia. Leaving Cush to continue his recovery, McDougall returned to the Isle of Pines and went out to the atoll to see the Nova for himself. There he found the boat on its side slowly breaking up. His report was filled with poignant detail. Quote, the two-acre atoll is strewn with papers belonging to the dead men. 
I found a note began by pulling on July 10. It reads, My darling wife, my darling wife, my darling. The writing is weak, suggesting pulling's despair and delirium. A few feet away was ticket number 40503 taken by Grant West in Lottery 1335. Here and there are food and clothing ration books. Where Cush slept on his last night on the atoll are his shoes, trousers and a torn copy of Adam Lindsay Gordon's works. On the first pages are these lines. Lights grow dim, yet some must swim when others sink, and some must sink when others swim. Make merry, comrades, eat and drink. The lights are growing dim. On the same page was, This has been and this shall be, here or there, in sun or star. These things are to be and will be, those things that were to be and are. Back in Australia, Sydney police announced they were inquiring into the circumstances of the Nova's disappearance and Cush's story, as reported by McDougall, and in the diaries and notes Pulling and Cush had kept, which had been sent back to Australia by airmail. Naturally, with Cush the sole survivor, his story had to be confirmed as far as possible and the Sydney authorities set about comparing what he'd said and written to tide charts and wind and weather reports. Cush's hopes of becoming a Numean fisherman were dashed, though, when authorities there refused his request for a local angling licence pending the results of the Sydney police's inquiry. And Cush's situation was further complicated because having jumped ship years ago, he no longer had a passport to prove who he was and where he was from. People flying back to Australia from Numea told reporters of meeting Cush. One said, quote, There are times when his mind seems to be up in the clouds and he just does not know where he is. By early December 1946, Cush was reported to be out of hospital and living with his rescuer, Ivor Peterson, on the Isle of Pines. Using empty oil drums, Cush had refloated the Nova and towed it to a slipway with the intention of trying to rebuild the vessel. Then, abruptly, he took the flying boat back to Brisbane, arriving there on the 9th of December, exactly six months after the Nova had left Jerseyville. His return coincided with Sydney police officially announcing they didn't feel it necessary to interview Cush because, quote, his story of the privations endured on the catch was consistent with the conditions that prevailed at sea during the 132-day drift. Cush told reporters he was in Brisbane on a mission to buy a bigger boat, the purchase bankrolled by Australian and Fijian businessmen who'd given him a blank cheque. He was simultaneously full of bluster and still broken by his experiences. Quote, I am not finished with the sea. I sailed two years before the mast, and I know the Pacific Islands. I came here to buy another boat. I want one about 60 feet, which I can skipper in the islands trading. 
Cush was back to a 12 stone weight and his cuts and other injuries had mostly healed, but he told reporters, quote, I am still weak and the thoughts of the drift haunt me wherever I go. In Brisbane, he met Ted Anderson, brother of Fred Anderson. Crying openly, Cush told him, quote, Your brother Fred was the last of the three to die, but he had a lot of guts. A bout of malaria had weakened him and he lay down in the cabin. I turned his face from the sun and went out to fish. This was the 80th day out and Fred was comforted because I told him that a few days before my mother had appeared in a dream and told me we would be saved on the 80th day. I had never seen my mother because she died in giving birth to me, but the vision comforted both of us and we firmly believed in this guidance. I returned from fishing on the deck at sundown, but Fred had died. And I was alone. Reporting this story, Townsville Daily Bulletin's journalist noted, quote, Cush still bears traces of the ordeal and his face twitches continually as he speaks. And in the photo of the two men that ran in the Courier Mail, James Cush looks handsome and absolutely haunted. These days, Cush would have been paid a fortune for the rights to his story and been able to avail himself of psychological counselling to help him deal with his horrific experience. But in late 1946, Cush was quickly yesterday's news and left broke and without the emotional and mental wherewithal to make a living. This, combined with his pre-existing character flaws, meant he didn't make the most of his miraculous survival. Before the Nova's disastrous drift, Big Jim had apparently been well-known and well-liked on the Brisbane waterfront, but he'd also had run-ins with the law elsewhere. Nothing at all is known about Jim Cush's early life, and he made his first appearance in Australian newspapers in August 1944, facing court in Adelaide for stealing clothes valued at five pounds. Cush had been caught wearing the stolen goods and he gave the explanation that he'd helped himself because his own clothes were dirty and worn out. Five months later, in January 1945, he was back in court, this time in Port Pirie, South Australia, convicted of having borrowed a boat without the owner's permission. Fined £10, which he couldn't pay, Cush got two months in jail. In January 1947, just one month after he returned to Australia, Cush was in Bundaberg, his grandiose plans for buying a big boat having come to nothing, likely because they were delusional. Instead, he was a vagrant, begging on the street and, according to police, posing a menace to the city. The cops who arrested and charged him didn't believe he was really Jim Cush, survivor of the Nova, and that he hadn't been demanding money from people, but rather asking to borrow it with the full intention of paying it back. 
In early February, it was established he was who he said he was, but the judge didn't care and Kush was sent to jail for a month. Upon his release, he told and perhaps sold the story of his unfair arrest and his incredible survival to Truth Newspaper. Kush was next reportedly hired to head up a Queensland reef fishing business, but it didn't pan out. In June 1947, in Grafton, he was arrested for drunkenness and forfeited his 10 shillings bail when he didn't appear in court to answer the charge. Two months later, Cush was back in a South Australian jail cell, cooling his heels for four hours after being arrested for, quote, being idle and disorderly. In March 1950, he was still at his petty crimes, convicted in Brisbane on two counts of false pretenses and sentenced to two months. Just over a year later, in May 1951, Cush was back in court again, this time on the more serious charge of trying to defraud a hotelier in Armadale, northern New South Wales, of £25 with a dodgy cheque. Explaining how his Nova ordeal had affected him, Cush told the magistrate, quote, I was a mental and physical wreck after that experience and I took to drinking heavily. Drinking became a disease with me and caused my downfall. I was in Goulburn prison for some time and was released and got a job. I was in the job for only three weeks when someone told the boss that I had been in prison. I lost the job. I tried to give drinking away and go straight, but I couldn't. If I could have another chance, I have prospects of a job at Armadale and would make good. Prison is no good. If a man goes to prison, he's got nothing when he comes out. The judge was unmoved and sentenced him to six months jail. Cush's downfall made news around Australia, including the Maryborough Chronicle in Queensland's headline, Castaway, Sent Away. What awaited Cush when he came out of prison at the end of 1951 isn't known because he didn't appear again in any newspaper I've been able to find. That is, with the exception of The Age on the 9th of September 1960 in an article headlined, Big Jim Was Adrift Five Months. The piece was a short, colourful and often inaccurate recap that claimed after his return to Australia, Cush, instead of suffering legal troubles, had simply bought that big boat and heeded the call of the sea. The article concluded with the cheery sentence, quote, Today Cush is still sailing the South Pacific in his new boat. While the age writer provided no evidence for this, It'd be nice to think that somehow Big Jim Cush did finally find some peace on the Pacific. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Don't forget to check out the side story to this episode about Murray Chambers, another Australian who survived against the odds at sea. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave a review or rating at iTunes and tell a friend or two to give us a listen. 
To see photos, headlines and articles about this and other stories, head to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.